I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. When he took office in 2014, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio promised a clean break with his predecessor Michael Bloomberg's approach to public education. And with a 50-point margin of victory, he would seem to have had a broad mandate for change. So, with the de Blasio administration nearing the end of its third year, it seems a good time to take stock of his accomplishments. What exactly has de Blasio done with the nation's largest school district? Has he succeeded in crafting a progressive alternative to the ed reform agenda? I'm Marty West, Editor-in-Chief of Education Next, and my guest today is Steve Ide, Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Steve is the author of Ed Reform Rollback in New York City, an article that will appear in the winter 2017 issue of the journal and is available now on our website at educationnext.org. Steve, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks for having me, Marty. So, Steve, why is this a good time to look at what's happening in New York City with respect to public education in particular? Yeah, well, two things are going on. I think, you know, first of all, nationwide, there seems to be this debate about the direction of education reform. I mean, on the one hand, the, you know, achievements of education reformers, some of them seem to have become permanent parts of the K-12 through policy landscape. I mean, standardized testing, charter schools, they're probably not going away anytime soon. On the other hand, when you look across, you know, especially big city school districts, you don't see the really kind of assertive leaders like Michelle Reed, Joel Klein, who are around, say, five, ten years ago. So there's a lot of question as to, you know, where things are headed, especially, you know, in big city school districts, I think. Um, And secondly, you know, if there was a place that seemed especially poised for a um, rollback of education reform, um, it would be New York City under Mayor de Blasio. You mentioned in in your intro, um, he... um, he was, you know, in the 2003 mayoral election, he was probably the most anti-Bloomberg candidate. Um, he won a resounding victory. Um, and another thing I'd point out that maybe people aren't as familiar about New York City politics is that, you know, there really aren't any checks and balances here in New York City. You know, not only are all the, not only do we not have any Republicans, we have no more cons- conservative Democrats, um, and there aren't even checks and balances. You know, the, the, the De Blasio handpicked the Speaker of the New York City Council um, in 2003, essentially. So. You know, we really seem to be going in a very different direction than Bloomberg, and so my article tries to talk about, you know, what exactly has happened under de Blasio. And, of course, when it comes to checks and balances, that applies even more in the case of public education with the mayor having control of the school system in New York City. Yeah, very much. And there continues to be, you know, support for mayoral control. I don't see anybody, you know, really calling for um, getting rid of it, although de Blasio has has not gotten the extended extension, the long-term extension of mayoral control that he sought from the state government, which is one of the, and detention with the state government is one of the themes of my article. So the first thing that the mayor does in New York City when taking office is appoint the chancellor. What did we learn from Mayor de Blasio's choice? Well, Carmen Farina is New York City's school chancellor. She has been around in education circles for a very long time in New York City, over 50 years. She even, for a time, held a position in the Bloomberg administration. Um, she is viewed as a, you know, kind of traditionalist. Even, um, you know, favorable media profiles of her point out that she's less data-driven, say, than Bloomberg and Klein were. Um, she has a much, she prides herself on having a much more kind of collegial 
relationship with the teachers union and other kind of stakeholders than Bloomberg and Klein did. So that's been the tone that they're trying to set, um, less focus on data, less focus on standards and accountability, and also kind of more of a more of a go-along, get-along attitude. And when you refer to Klein, of course, that's uh, Chancellor Joel Klein under Mayor Bloomberg, who was the um, the epitome of the outsider when it came to uh, choice as, as chancellor, a non-traditional superintendent, not an education background. Carmen Farina strikes me as the consummate insider. Very much. Yeah, very much. And that's what de Blasio was looking for, both to, both to rely on expertise and also to send a message that he wasn't trying to, you know, break cages like Klein was trying to do. Now, one of the things that Bloomberg and Klein were known for was this heavy emphasis on school accountability. So uh, A through F letter grades, uh, heavily based on standardized test score performance, though with other indicators included as well. What has been the status of that approach under de Blasio? Well, I think maybe the most notable change, specific change that they've made is getting rid of these, yeah, these school report cards that Bloomberg um, um, came out with. I mean, you know, one of the big advantages of, ha- of having standardized tests and having all this data is to be able to kind of sort through it and give uh, parents and other others a clear idea, simple ideas of where things are headed with particular schools and with the school system in general. So the, uh, Bloomberg came out with these report cards, ranking schools on an eight, eight through a basis. De Blasio thought this was, you know, essentially punitive. He, he, he altered it. There is still a sort of, to, to make it a kind of what he calls school quality report system. So you're giving some sort of explanation of what's going on with the school, but they don't, um, the letter grades are no more. They got rid of the letter grades. Um, and this is a problem because researchers, including my colleague Marcus Winters, has showed that it seems to be the case that letter grades motivate better performance among um, poor-performing schools. And some of that research was certainly has been around for years, but de Blasio um, wasn't convinced by that research, so he wanted to take things in a different direction. Now, we should also point out, though, that the um, generally positive trends with respect to New York City state test score results seem to have continued thus far under the de Blasio administration. So it's hard to make a sort of um, case based on the performance data that we can see that things have headed off in a uh, terrible direction. Very much. I mean, you know, when you're talking about the graduation rate or, you know, proficiency rates, they they just seem to keep going up under Bloomberg, especially toward the later years. And they, that those trends have continued under de Blasio. So there are no, there's, let's, let's be very clear about this. There are no early signs of complete collapse at the New York City Department of Education. So let's run through some other things that were um, sort of that the Bloomberg and Klein administration were well known for. One was really pushing hard on the teacher's contract, trying to win concessions from the United Federation of Teachers. Uh, really some quite antagonistic relationships, I would say, with uh, Randy Weingarten, who was in charge of the UFT at the outset of their time in office. How has that changed under de Blasio? Well, de Blasio has better relations with the UFT than the Bloomberg did. The later years of Bloomberg were years of fiscal austerity. That you know, we were dra- New York City was slowly getting out from the Great Recession, and so they had this. They left when they left office. They had not fi- been able to come to terms on a con- on a new contract with the UFT because essentially the UFT wanted more money than the um, and fewer concessions than the Bloomberg administration was willing to give. De Blasio came into the office and very early settled on generous terms with the UFT. I think 
think for a couple of reasons. First of all, he was just, you know, he has strongly pro-labor sympathies. And also, he didn't want to get his administration, while he was rolling out all these initiatives, pre-K, affordable housing, he didn't want to get bogged down in teacher contract negotiations. So that, as as well as, you know, kind of regular meetings with the current UFD head, Michael Mulgrew, has signaled that, you know, there's certainly better they get along better than they did under Bloomberg. However, I do want to emphasize in getting into some of the other things I talk about this article that this this relationship has not been completely without tension. And that you know there early on there have been more, recently some signs that the, there has been um, difficulties between De Blasio and the UFD, especially on the school discipline issue, where De Blasio wants to go in a fairly aggressive direction in rolling back school discipline, but teachers, understandably, are very concerned about what this would mean for the status of order in their classrooms. So let's talk a little bit more about the school discipline issue. Obviously, this has been something that's received a lot of attention nationwide, uh, people trying to rethink the uh, approaches to discipline that lead to students spending time outside of school as punishment, and de Blasio seems to really embrace that uh, national agenda. Yes, and you know, I I think that it's possibly, you know, another thing that de Blasio has preserved one point of continuity with Bloomberg, which is the heavy focus on the achievement gap, and what are we doing to improve, you know, the lowest performing schools that students with the most challenges make up, create better opportunities for them. Um, You know, clearly the students who stand to benefit from a less aggressive approach on school discipline, meaning, say, more constraints on principal's ability to hand out suspensions. Um, you know, those are the ones who progressives are particularly concerned about when they're saying we need less in the way of school discipline. But teachers, administrators, also parents are extremely concerned about what this would mean for the rest of the classroom, in particular, you know, what sometimes people refer to as strivers, you know, um, high potential, low, moderate income students in the New York City school system who, you know, are not going to be benefited as much if with it with, from, are not going to ben- be benefited at all. Um, Without it, if schools, school classrooms, you know, aren't in a, aren't orderly. So there's something of a dispute, it seems, about what exactly is going on with the level of order and disorder in New York City schools with this new approach. And we should say that the number of suspensions began to fall in the waning years of the Bloomberg administration. The De Blasio administration has heralded this decline in the number of school safety incidents reported in schools, but a group known as Families for Excellent Schools, really disputes that number. Can you help us understand what's going on there? Yeah, there have been different numbers out about that. Well, first of all, as you say, you know, again, suspensions were declining under Bloomberg. They've declined farther under de Blasio, um, partly because of policy decisions that have been taken to restrict principles. The principles essentially have to ask for more permission now to to um, hand out suspicion, uh, suspensions for certain things. Um, And there are different data based upon coming from, whether it's coming from the city or the state, about incidents and how you categorize incidents uh, have shown different trends in the rate of of order in classrooms, um, disorder in school classrooms. There's also, you know, also, you know, parents, I think, have been speaking up about this. You know, if their their child had a very bad experience, if they're not seeing more order, then they're not, you know, being persuaded by what the administration says. And there have also been reports about um, 
the number of uh, you know guns and weapons that are being recovered in in, in schools. Uh, getting rid of these metal detectors, metal detectors, which are kind of like this you know very offensive thing for progressive school discipline critics, um, for students to have to go through every day. They want to remove those, but then it still seems to be the case that that many many weapons are continuing to be recovered, confiscated um, from New York City school students. So people are very not sure about whether or not we can sort of declare victory on crime in schools and, and, and um, roll back all the measures that we put in place over recent decades. So you mentioned continuing the focus on the achievement gap. One of the ways in which Bloomberg and Klein sought to focus on that issue was by really paying attention to very low-performing schools and, in effect, uh, closing many of them and trying to replace them with smaller schools, often schools of choice, whether they be New York City uh, public schools or charter schools. We've written a little bit about that in Education Next, an article by James, uh, James Kemple showing that students who would have attended those schools seem to have experienced very positive outcomes as a result. How has de Blasio changed the city's approach to that issue? Well, again, de Blasio was not persuaded by that research or research that had come out in support of the Bloomberg closure policies prior to him taking office. So he believes in turnaround. He wants to move away from closures back to turnarounds. And so he has these couple programs, the Renewal School programs and the Community Schools Initiative, that want to turn around low-performing schools as opposed to closing them. In very extreme cases, it was like you know absolutely dwindling enrollment. You still got to close down schools, but for the most part, we're going to try to turn them around. And that has placed heavy emphasis on uh, social service. Uh, so they're providing hundreds of millions of dollars to allow low-performing schools um, to enter into relationships with community nonprofits to provide wraparound social services uh, to students to, you know, improve their lives and hopefully uh, boost their achievement. That's the, that's the big emphasis right now in New York City's turnaround policy. And this is an idea that, of course, makes good sense uh, in many respects and is modeled to some degree off of the Harlem Children's Zone approach. But you argue in the piece that it's something of a imperfect model there. Why is that the case? Well, the way I brought up the Harlem Children's Zone because it, it, everybody can agree on the Harlem Children's Zone at one level. I mean, you know, there are different models of community schools, but I think, you know, you find a lot of supporters for the Harlem Children's Zone itself on both the right and the left. But the Harlem Children's Zone is essentially this, you know, full-scale, like, effort at neighborhood revitalization in low-income Harlem, as well as running these two schools. And you know, leaving aside for a moment questions about how high the chief of the Harlem school children's own schools are, um, it's just extremely expensive. Um, it's $100 million to run the services around these uh, two schools. So the idea that if we're not going to be able to do that, um, but only something short of that, well, what are we going to be able to do? And, you know, again, there are dozens and dozens of low-performing schools in New York City. How are we going to distribute resources in the best way if, if we really believe in this social service approach? There's been these, this really strong, deep fiscal and administrative challenges that may have been unexpected for the de Blasio administration that they have had to contend with in rolling out these turnaround initiatives. So let's move on and talk about charter schools a bit. Uh, those of us who watched the New York City mayoral election from afar in 2013, the one thing we would have picked up on was de Blasio's comments about charters. I remember him saying, there's no way in hell Eva Moskowitz should get free rent, referring to CEO of the Success Academies, Eva Moskowitz, um, and sort of saying he's really going to make it harder for them to get access to facilities. Has he been successful in that effort? 
Uh, no. In fact, the great irony of uh, charter school policy under de Blasio that, in fact, resources for facilities has, instead of becoming less secure under de Blasio, they have become more secure than ever. Um, and it, it's really access to facilities that city government has the most authority over in terms of charter school policy in New York City. You know, real estate is at a premium. So you want to open a new school, where are you going to put it? Uh, new Bloomberg had this policy of co-location, of providing space to um, charters and underused uh, district schools, um, district school space. De Blasio was not sure about that, but what happened was the kind of uh, was uh, state government intervened in a, in a very very aggressive way. Um, the governor Andrew Cuomo, who has who developed this long running feud of de, with De Blasio over several issues, but early on one was charter schools, and he became he announced himself as a big proponent of charter schools, and he has, he passed a law with the state legislature early on the De Blasio administration that now requires the city to provide either space or funding for um, um, for facilities for new or expanding charter schools. So ironically, de Blasio's efforts to sort of restrain the ability of charters to expand actually ended up putting them on more secure footing in the city going forward. As a result of Cuomo's intervention, very much. And, and the state's role in particular, I think—, I think it, K-12 policy in general under de Blasio has provided many people with a reminder that K-12 policy in America is just as much a state uh, issue as it is a local issue. Yeah, in fact, ultimately, the states have primary responsibility. They've delegated in the past, but they can always uh, sort of reclaim authority. Yeah, and that goes on a number of aspects of K-12 policy as well, not just charters. So let's look slightly beyond K-12 policy to pre-K, which was the other area that de Blasio has tried to make some major moves. And here I have to admit from the outside, this issue is very difficult to understand. We saw de Blasio wanting to actually impose a tax on the city itself to fund this activity, but you had the state stepping in and saying, no, you can't do that, but we want to pay for it? De Blasio believed that funding for his, uh, this expansion of pre-K to make it universal for all kids in New York City would be more secure. You'd have more secure funding if it was imposed via a local tax. So he proposed this local income tax on high earners. Cuomo prides himself on being a fiscal conservative um, tax cutter, so he rejected that effort because the state has ultimate authority over these types of um, revenue-raising decisions at the local level, and instead found money in the state budget to provide for these expansion of pre-K under de Blasio. Um, so that's that would happen. So de Blasio got his program, but the funding mechanism was, was different. And is it a truly universal program, and what should we make of that? Yeah, it's for all all four year olds. Yeah, all income levels certainly. The, the um, for a couple of reasons they claim that a more d diverse students uh, body of pre K uh, children uh, is better educationally. And then they've been fairly candid about the idea that uh, you know you have more political support for for any, any social program if everybody gets it. Um, so the result is that uh, it seems to be the case, according to studies that some people have done, that some low income um, New Yorker children in New York are still still don't have access to pre-K because the expansion has been very 
bigger in some neighborhoods than other and better off incomes than others. Um, and also people have raised questions as to whether essentially if it's a universal problem that re restricts your flexibility to target resources um, towards low-income students who may need it the most, maybe they need an extra year um, as opposed to just one year, maybe you should pay teachers more. Um, those, those types of things are going to be restricted when you insist on this broad distribution of resources that occurs from you know, giving it to everybody. So we've covered a lot of ground in this conversation, and your article goes into more detail on additional topics even. I want to try and step back and sort of look at the big picture to close the conversation. And you conclude your article by writing that a viable progressive alternative to Bloomberg's education reform agenda has yet to emerge. Why do you not see what de Blasio has done as a sort of coherent or comprehensive agenda, and to the extent that it's not, uh, what explains the uh, sort of failure of the de Blasio administration to craft an alternative? Well, because the number of these elements of education reform still seem to have significant traction, such as charter schools. Um, they have a number of supporters, at least at the state level. If at the local level, maybe they're not as popular. Um, and also, there are these tensions within the de Blasio coalition and within the de Blasio vision that have not been sorted out on, on, on community schools, on use of resources, whether you distribute resources widely or, or narrowly, and also uh, what to do with the teachers. Union. If the teachers' union doesn't agree with you on all your policies, um, and what, is it, what, is, what does that mean for the coherence of the progressive uh, vision on K through 12 in general? So those, in, in addition to the tension with the state, I think these things don't look like they're going away. They're still, you know, unresolved tensions. So until they do, you know, get rid of them or, or resolve them, um, it still seems to be the case that what Bloomberg and Klein did uh, under uh, in New York City throughout their three terms are still going to remain and have a lot of traction in New York City. So, of course, we're heading into uh, 2017 shortly, and that will be a year in which de Blasio is up for re-election. Uh, I don't want to put you too much on the spot, but how is education going to inform the election next year? I think he's, he will certainly place a lot of emphasis on universal pre-K. Let's be let's be clear about one thing on universal pre-K. It's very popular. You know, you know, conservative education researchers who continue to put out reports saying, well, pre-K, you know, you have these problems with fade it, fade out. It's not a panacea. That may be the case, but it's very popular um, in New York City. It's not going away. So he's going to lean very heavily on that. The other parts of his K through 12 agenda, even politically speaking, um, they're not as people aren't as excited about them. So uh, I think what we'll be hearing the most about pre-K, and also uh, except with the exception that he's generally things are sort of continue to generally improve uh, in the direction that they were proving under Bloomberg. So it won't hurt him if test scores are not going down. But the, the you know the, the great uh, revolution, the big big difference, big change from Bloomberg, I don't think that that's going to be presented before voters. Well, Steve, hopefully we can have you back next year if uh, education becomes an issue in the campaign to help us understand what's going on in New York City. Thanks a lot for having me, Marty. It's been a pleasure. So my guest today has been Steve Ide. His article, Ed Reform Rollback in New York City, is available now at educationnext.org. Uh, you've been listening today to the Ednext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, please leave us a review. 
It helps us find more listeners and more listeners find us. Thank you for tuning in to Education Next's weekly podcast, released every Wednesday morning. For more on education reform, visit us online, educationnext.org.